Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Today we're going to continue our tour of the world's democratic trouble spots. We did the United States last week, we did Brazil at the weekend. Today we're going to do Italy and we're probably going to get to France and we might just mention the UK. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, the magazine that publishes its political analysis in between essays on art and history, philosophy and technology, Princess Margaret or the Garden of Eden. Visit lrb.co.uk forward slash talking for a reading list of similarly eclectic pieces to accompany today's episode and a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Six months of the LRB for just £1 an issue. I have with me today Helen Thompson, who knows a great deal about European political economy, Chris Bickerton, who knows a great deal about European political institutions, and Lucia Rubinelli, who knows about European political thought and also knows a lot about Italian politics. Two things happened last night. One, and this is Wednesday morning, I should say, It's always Wednesday morning on this podcast. Almost always. Almost always, except when it's not. One was, we think there is potentially the makings of an agreement between the EU and the UK government, and now we have to see if the UK government can hold together, and we don't know. So maybe we'll touch on that at the end. The second thing that happened last night was the EU set the Italian government a midnight deadline to come up with a new budget, because the EU has rejected the Italian budget as having breached its rules, And the Italian government let that deadline pass and wrote back and said, we're not budging. And so in one of these stories, there is the makings of an agreement. And in the other of these stories, there is a growing showdown. It's at least possible that the Italian story is more significant. So we're going to try and make sense of that to start with. Chris, can you just spell out the background to this? So what is the budget argument fundamentally about And how significant is it that the Italian government won't back down? So it's about probably a couple of things. One is about whether a fiscal stimulus type budget is acceptable within the European Union's budgetary rules. And the other is about disagreements about growth projections for the Italian economy. Essentially, the Italian government, which is made up of the the League and the Five Star Movement, two uh, unconventional political parties, political movements, um, have come together. And part of their promise to their voters was to do something different and to do something different with the economy. And that has translated into a budget that tries to spend a bit more to get the Italian economy going. Uh, The Italian economy still is, is smaller than it was in 2008. It really isn't growing at all. And so this is a kind of I suppose, a demand-led budget. And the rule that's being broken here is the deficit rule. Yes, I mean, there is a kind of a a limit of 3%, which the EU has had for some time. And has been broken a lot in the past. Yes, I mean, it's... um, That line has not been held consistently. Absolutely not, no. And it's been broken most notably by some countries, which are today very strict on it, but have in the past uh, not respected it. But in the Italian case, there are projecting a deficit of 2.4% in 2019. This is related to the amount of debt, overall debt, that the Italian economy has, which introduces enormous spending in terms of simply servicing that debt. And the Commission's view is that those servicing costs will simply go up. Just to be clear about this, so they're not breaching the 3% rule. The view is that 
the state of the Italian economy, particularly its indebtedness, means that even 2.4% is unsustainable. They're breaking secondary rules of the fiscal compact and they're breaking an agreement that the previous Italian government had made about what the budget deficit for 2019 would be. So the Commission's view is that agreements from one government have to continue to the next. And there is a balanced budget rule, which is that over time, governments have to show and commit themselves to balancing their budgets rather than running systematic deficits. So the promise of bringing the Italian budget deficit down to 0.8% of GDP was along these lines of balancing the budget over time, and that's been replaced by something much more expansionary, which takes it up to 2.4%. Now, the reason why the growth discussion is really important, because if the Italian economy grows a lot, then that has a massive impact on its ability to service its debt. And so the problems of debt are not unrelated to whether an economy can grow or not. So in some ways, you can see both sides of the of the argument, but um, the Italian government's position is just, we think a fiscal stimulus is what the Italian economy needs at the moment. And as I notice, we'll come on to another of these in a minute, but the Italian politicians have been drawing on American history to come up with some of their slogans, and one of them is, we've nothing to fear but fear itself. This is a kind of Rooseveltian moment where the fear is on the EU side that they had these kind of conservative and negative projections of the future, whereas the claim of the Italian government is they're the ones who are injecting hope into this process because they believe that the Italian economy can grow, but they have to start from here, right? Yes, and there are, I guess, two interesting things to be said here. So the first one is that differently from a few years ago, I would say that it is widely accepted that we are challenging the budget rule of the European Union. So the fact per se that we are going to create more deficit is no longer seen as such a big problem as it used to be seen under Berlusconi and then under Monti. I guess the discourse has shifted quite importantly there. What there is disagreement about, meaning what the opposition is contesting to the government, is how this extra money is going to be spent. So what they are contesting is whether these these measures in the budget, which are mainly some tax deductions, lowering the retirement age, and this sort of universal income that the five star had promised. So the thing that opposition parties are contesting to the government is whether these measures are actually going to bring about growth. Again, just to be clear, so we, there's pressure coming from two directions here. So you've got the EU, the Commission, who are pushing back on the grounds that there are rules or there are previous agreements that are being breached. And then you've got the internal opposition in Italian politics who are saying, we've got to do something here, but this is the wrong thing. Exactly. So there is disagreement that what has been done so far is not really working. Of course, Renzi is trying to defend what his government did. But I would say that there is a wide, sort of a widespread consensus that something needs to be done and that the EU is not offering a solution. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important to see that this isn't just the populists to give them that label challenging the authority. And I noticed Chris very carefully called them unconventional rather than (laughs) populists. Because the Renzi government had pretty much exactly the same confrontation. In fact, the Renzi government wanted a bigger budget deficit when it confronted the Commission in 2016. And Renzi said, if his party had won in the run-up to the election in 2018, that the budget deficit would be 2.9%, i.e. as big as it could be without hitting the 3% rule. So there is, as Lucia says, some actual political consensus in Italy that Italy cannot be bound by the fiscal compact and the stability and growth pact, which is the bit where the 3% come from. It takes a government like Monti's or the one that came after Renzi's... Gentiloni. Gentiloni's government <laughs> to be... Um, so hard to keep up. It is. Well, I actually could remember, I couldn't remember the pronunciation, that's my problem, so... <laughs> is that 
you don't actually have that many politicians in Italy now who are going to say we are fine with doing what the Commission says where the budget deficit is concerned. What you do have, as Lucia says, is a contest about then what that fiscal stimulus should be. But it's interesting in the case of Renzi that really the Commission, to all intents and purposes, backed down because it understood that Renzi got that referendum coming up and it didn't ultimately rock the boats officially and then after that then Renzi moved a little bit. The difference this time around I think is that this confrontation is happening in a context in which the ECB is about to withdraw support for Italy through the end of QE so the stakes are actually much higher than when Renzi was having this confrontation. I think we're very much in sort of a different place than we were with Matteo Renzi. I always thought with Renzi there was something slightly sort of false and um it was a bit like a charade, you know, he called Merkel this kind of lecturing old aunt and he wasn't going to listen to her anymore. But you didn't feel that the actual substantive kind of policy content of what he had to offer was really shaking up the the workings of the Eurozone. This time round, in some ways, the kind of rhetoric is not as extreme as some of the stuff that Renzi said, but the substantive disagreement is there. And I think the consensus in Italy has shifted very much towards doing something. The question is what to do, and there's disagreement about what to do, but there's no debate about whether we do something or not. So I think that's a really significant change. And the parties that are sort of leading this are very much committed to doing it. It's not that old kind of the thing you had with the PD in Italy, the sort of democratic party, they would talk the talk but wouldn't really necessarily follow up in, in policy terms. Yeah, it's very striking because Salvini, particularly, what he's known for outside Italy is some pretty incendiary rhetoric. You could almost see it the other way around. I totally take your point. But as Helen said, this is within a sort of spectrum of possibility where there's quite broad consensus, actually, and potentially it's not quite as radical as it looks. And yet the language that's being used by the Italian politicians, you know, we think that people in Britain are being rude about Juncker. It's nothing. I mean, the one that I saw was they explicitly say, well, there's no point in sending him a new budget because he'll be too drunk to read it. Salvini's not a restrained politician. But the impression with Italy, I think, is that People tend to think that it's, in economic terms, it has this very large debt and somehow it's been unable to contain its spending. That's absolutely false. Since Italy joined the Eurozone, it has been very restrained in its spending. The debt that it has has been accumulated in earlier periods, not since joining the Euro. So the change in Italy there is from being pretty good at observing these Maastricht criteria, the Stability and Growth Pact, to simply saying, this is not working for us anymore. We're not thinking in those terms anymore and we're going to take the the European Union on. Yeah, and I would say that this is reflected also in a shift in discourse, as David was saying. And going back to your what you said about Italian leaders using American slogans, all the idea of there's nothing to fear but fear itself actually is meant to be an attack against the European Union. What the Five Star Government and the Northern League did is to create a discourse whereby the oscillations of the market only depend on the type of discourse we have about ourselves. So the idea is it's not going to be 2.4 or 2.5 that's going to change. What's going to change is what type of discourse we're able to sell. So Salvini, I saw, said of the spreads, the famous spreads, it's what I put on my bread for breakfast in the morning. That's what I think a spread is, not the kind of spread that Helen has talked about many times. Exactly. And interestingly, even um, Di Maio, the leader of the Five Star, they've been accusing the European Union, the technocrats, opposition government, which basically means Renzi, and newspapers, that's new, that's interesting, a lot of attacks against newspapers, to 
build up fear to mastermind a plan whereby they're going to instill fear in the international markets so that then the spread is going to rise and then there are going to be problems and hence they're going to, Italy will not be able to flourish as it should. But the idea is that there are objective criteria that will make Italy flourish, but that there is a general project fear that's preventing that. And speaking of American slogans, are they talking about fake news? Is that become part of the... Yes, all the time. Fake news is, ex- is part what, what of the What is discourse. that in Italian? Um, or is it just fake news? Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say there is an Italian translation. They use fake news. So they use the English yeah. words. And there is a constant attack, especially from the Five Star against mainstream newspapers, saying that they, they shouldn't have any public funding, that all they're doing is spreading, again, fake news, that they have a detailed plan about how to make the government fail, etc. So, And in rhetorical terms, actually, this is closer to Turkey than to America. I mean, this is the Erdogan playbook, right? That the, that the markets are part of the giant fear-mongering conspiracy against the government, it, it trying to do its best theory. by its people. Yeah. I don't believe for a minute that um, <laughs> Savini really doesn't care less about the, the spread because he knows perfectly well the mediating factor in the way the markets behave is the European Central Bank. And the reason why Berlusconi lost his confrontation when he wanted to have a higher budget deficit was because the ECB was not supporting Italian bonds. And that meant that the Italian spread over German bonds could push to crisis point. The reason in part why Renzi won his confrontation was because Italian bond yields didn't rise at that point in in late 2016. The problem that Salvini's got is, is at the moment he's done quite well because they actually haven't risen well they rose in the run-up to the decision on the 23rd of October but they've been fairly stable since the difficulty comes once the ECB stops buying Italian bonds in and December. once it doesn't have an Italian as its head well I think that the, the crisis point comes before Draghi actually leaves it comes now that this conflict is in place it comes as soon as there are no QE purchases which is the end of December have they been pushing back against the ECB too Absolutely, so in, in yeah. their list of villains Ag- yeah again here including Draghi yeah, here it's interesting because the five star are different from the league. So the five star they have they have accused Draghi continuously. So when in October when the, when the government presented the budget for the first time, Draghi waked in in the public debate and said, "No, that's wrong. That's not going to work." And Di Maio attacked him very very violently, while Salvini remained silent. So Salvini is much more careful. He has a very strong rhetoric when it comes to national pride, when it comes to anti-migration discourse, etc. But he remained quite silent when it comes to ECB. I mean, quite sensibly, because he knows that Draghi will have some discretion, which is what to do about reinvesting the old purchases that mature. So there will be some kind of wriggle room, at least for a while, as to how much support the ECB gives to Italian bonds. And ultimately, Salvini has to keep Draghi on side. So he needs to keep his mouth shut on that subject. But I mean, it's also worth remembering the Five Star Movement has, from the very beginning talked a lot about monetary sovereignty. Grillo would attack the European Central Bank a lot. Its commitment to having a referendum on the euro disappeared. There's been a general softening, I think, of its line as it's kind of grown and now finally is in government. So the trajectory has not been towards more radicalisation around eurozone membership and the central bank. It's been towards more accommodation, which I think then puts this kind of budgetary spat into a bit of context. It's not a, a random fight. I think there are some things not on the table. This isn't the sort of nuclear sort of option. This is seen to be a pragmatic, realistic, concrete disagreement, well-grounded, well-founded, which they think they can win. I don't think anybody thinks that the budgetary projection for 2019 of 2.4% of uh, GDP is going to sink the eurozone. But if it becomes, if you like, 
absorbed into an existential question for the Eurozone related to the position that the ECB might take about whether it supports or not the Italian economy, then we get into crisis territory. And I think the Five Star are not wanting to push it into that. They want to restrict it to a struggle about fiscal stimulus. And the League as well. So another important yeah. piece of information, I think, is that the main secretary to the Premier, so this famous Giuseppe Conti, is Salvini's economic advisor within the League. And he's renowned for being actually quite, a sens- as they say, a sensible person when it comes to economic policy. And he plays the other side of Salvini. So Salvini is the one who makes the big statements, who's provocative. And then he's, his name is Giorgetti. He's the one who translates Salvini's statement into measures that actually can open up a dialogue with the European Union. So there is also this other side. Because that leads on to the question of where the power is within this complicated arrangement, which is the Italian government. So when we spoke about this last, it was during the period where this government was being put together. And there'd been a move from the election where Five Star got roughly twice, not quite twice as many votes as the League, but it certainly got um, significantly more votes than the League. By the time the government was being formed, they were polling neck and neck. And now we've reached the point where the League are actually polling ahead of Five Star Now, how has this shifted? So we've got the Prime Minister, as you said, the famous Giuseppe Conte. We'll come on to him maybe in a second. But it's this unusual government that's being run by its deputies, effectively. How is that balance being played out? Does it really matter who's in the ascendancy in in public opinion between these two? Because they are very different movements. Yes, I think it matters quite a lot. And I think the Five Star were surprised to find out that Salvini, who started with 17% of votes, now is over 30, while they lost four or five points. And you can see this play out both in the public discourse, in the sense that the League is increasingly more powerful. They won local elections, especially they won local elections in South Tyrol, where traditionally it was the autonomous party that would always be in power. Now it's the League. So that's a big shift. And you also see it at level of what the government is doing, because Salvini has much more leverage, he has much more power, he gets everything he wants, while the Five Star have, have to threaten a crisis every time in order to get something out of Salvini. I think the most striking thing, though, is that the Five Star have somewhat dwindled, but the centre-left have not been able to benefit from it, because the Five Star movement could only have been as successful as it was by taking votes from the left as well as from the right. But actually, the shift that's taken place so far since the election has only benefited the League. I think the budgetary spat is also driven by this internal relationship between the League and the Five Star. I always felt that the Five Star had a much harder time in government to actually deliver because it was promising more difficult things. The Lega, okay, I mean, it was promising a hard line on migration. Salvini's managed to kind of take advantage of some situations, such as, you know, the arrival of boats that he refuses to let them dock in Italian ports. That creates a a lot of news. But uh, for Di Maio and for the Five Star, delivering on their promise, which is basically a substantial social transformation in Italy, a complete reform of its labour markets, really focusing on people's day-to-day, that's much more difficult. And so the budget, I think, is driven by them because they think this is what they're elected to do and this is really important. And they have to be able to spend more money to, to deliver on what they promised. And if they don't get this through and if they stand down, then I think there's probably a, an awareness that this will hurt them a lot in terms of their public support. How much of a sense is there in Italy that as the league rises? With Five Star, there was always... The possibility that something interesting was happening in Italy that wasn't happening anywhere else. Because Five Star is a pretty distinctive kind of movement. It's hard to find parallels for it. Whereas, as I was saying, the League, both in its rhetorical strategy and some of the policy positions, seems to fit much more closely into that pattern of 
for want of a better phrase, right populism, which then strays close to far right populism. Is there is there a feeling in Italy that actually Italian politics is moving quite significantly to the right? And we talked about it in relation to America, so we might as well talk about it in relation to Italy, and that something that we could recognise as 21st century fascism is, is bubbling under the surface? So yes, I think that's an interesting question. And there is, yes, there is a sense that Italian politics is moving towards the far right. And part of this sense comes not from the fact that the League is in power. The League has been in power for b- before with Berlusconi, for instance. I mean, it, it was less nationalist and more federalist, but it's not the first time the League is in power. What is striking is that the Five Star, who started as a relatively left-wing type of movement, has moved completely to the right. And it doesn't seem to be losing that many votes. As I said before, it lost maybe 4%. So the question is, what's happening within the Five Star Movement? Are they also moving towards the far right or are they keeping some of their uh, leftist agenda? And this connects to the question of fascism. Yes, there is a lot of debate in Italy about whether what we are seeing is the rise of fascism. And there are some elements in the public discourse that seem to point out, that, well, there is something going on. For instance, at some point, Salvini said something about stop funding state benefits for the victims, Jewish victims of the Holocaust. That turned out to be just a sentence. He said nothing concrete, but But nonetheless, it's quite scary. So there is a a lot of debate about that. And definitely intellectuals, especially from the centre and the left, as well as newspapers, so traditional Italian newspapers, Corriere della Sera, Repubblica, are trying to build that type of discourse. I don't know if I agree that the five stars kind of drifting so much to the right. I think it was always not left or right. It was a kind of post-materialist sort of environmentalist movement that was, you know, ideologically quite difficult to position and picked up voters from all sorts of different places. And I think it's the fact that it went into government with the league was a decisive thing. I think Mm -hmm. my feeling was I wasn't even sure they'd be willing to do that because it seemed to run so counter to their identity as a movement. But they did. And I think it's been a kind of an uncomfortable time since then. I think this budget thing is really important because it shows that they're trying to deliver not on the immigration stuff that Salvini dominates, but on what they saw as central to their identity. And they're sort of tarnished by association inevitably, which is what coalitions can always do. And it can have negative consequences, as we see in lots of places. But um, I don't know if they don't get this through and if they see there's nothing in it for them, I don't know what they would do. But I don't think they would just drift into a far-right populist sort of mode. If, if part of their core identity was environmentalism, one of the features of the the right populism, whether it's Trump or some of the Eastern European variants, Czech Republic, for instance, is that it's it's sceptical about environmental issues. Is that a point of tension between them? Is Where is the league on there's no, climate there, change? Well, that's interesting because there's no debate about climate change whatsoever. So even the five-star, they drop No debate the because they agree or no debate because no one talks about it? It's just not, a, not an issue. And interestingly, no, we had quite a few disasters recently, meaning the bridge in Genoa that collapsed, all the problems with bad weather, extreme conditions few weeks ago. There's no debate about the environment at all. I think the, th- the crucial thing that's happening in Italy is it's migration that's dragged the politics to the right. And Salvini is just much better at talking a language that seems to work in terms of winning votes than the other parties are uh, about it. And I think that the important thing as well is is the way in which he's able to sort of connect all the stories together so he can connect the story about the bridge, effectively blame it on the 
inability of the Italian government to have a fiscal stimulus because it can't spend money on infrastructure. That becomes the EU's fault. The EU's hypocritical about migration, which it indeed it is hypocritical about um, migration, where some countries like France go to great lengths to ensure that migrants end up getting sent back to Italy. Italy then gets criticised for the way that it deals with, or Salvini in particular gets criticised for the way in which he deals with, with the boat. So the fact is, is he can take pretty much every issue that's salient in Italian politics at the moment and construct it into a single narrative in which he, it is increasingly becoming he, is the representative of the Italian nation standing up to these global forces, whether they be non-governmental organisations or whether they be the European Union. And, and as a narrative, it's proving to be quite effective. And much more effective than the five-star narrative, because as Chris was saying, yes, they, they have a different set of measures that they want to implement. But the main measure is this basic income, as they call it, which is, however, a highly divisive measure because it splits Italy around the centre. So the north doesn't want it, because in the north there's no such a problem as unemployment or at least it's less felt, while in the South there is a lot of problem with unemployment. So their main programmatic point is seen as divisive. So even their discourse is much more complex, much more complicated. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile unlimited premium wireless. Ready to get 30 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20 20, 20 ready to get 20 20, ready to get 15 15, 15 15, just 15 bucks a month. So, give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for 3 months plus taxes and fees. Promo rate for new customers for a limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's try and situate this in, in wider European politics, and we'll come on to Macron in a second because we haven't talked to Chris about where we think Project Macron is at the moment, and it's always good to catch up on that. One more thing that an Italian politician said that borrows from American politics, the famous Giuseppe Conti said, read my lips, Italy is not leaving the euro. As many commentators pointed out, that's a weird one to choose because George H.W. Bush said, read my lips, no new taxes, and then he introduced new taxes. But it was an attempt to make clear that this is absolutely not part of what's being bargained over here. It's a bit like when, in the football analogy, when the chairman has to say that he backs a manager, that's when the manager's days are numbered. Merely saying it raises it as a possibility. Well, I think that the issue with the Southern European states saying, or governments of these Southern European states saying we're not leaving the euro, is that it makes the issue into a matter of, of their potential secession from the Eurozone, of saying we don't want to be members of it any longer because it, it causes us too many problems. But the real risk that they face, as Greece found, is actually being expelled from the Euro, not voluntarily choosing to leave the Euro. Now, in Italy's case, I think that expelling Italy from the Euro is quite obviously a whole other proposition than the prospect of expelling Greece from it. That is a fundamental crisis of the European Union. And in that sense, I think that the Italian government does think that that, that is a card that it has to play in this confrontation. But ultimately, the question has to be is, is can the Eurozone be patched up in, in ways that are acceptable both to its Southern European members and to Germany and in a slightly different way to France? And I think in some sense, a French position might actually matter less than the other two. And I think ultimately, that's what this playing out of this drama over the Italian budget in the end, at least in its conjunction with the ECB aspect of it, will lead to an answer. When they say we're not leaving, how does that 
work as a negotiating strategy? What are they actually trying to convey there? So one, I think, is this general commitment to the Eurozone as a, as a project, which certainly when the government was formed and there was this squabble and fight around nominating a Eurosceptic finance minister, there were these doubts, you know, how committed might this government be? Certainly one of the both actually really floated ideas about a referendum on membership. So there's a need to kind of reassure, I think, because that then makes the negotiation not about that. It makes it about the budget, not about Eurozone membership, and the two shouldn't be connected. I don't think there's much appetite on either side of the government, certainly not that I can see, to initiate any sort of plan or project. I mean, there was some discussion about how you might issue parallel currencies in order to help Italy without formally leaving the Eurozone. I don't think that's gone very far, even though it's probably still sort of existing in in certain places. As a negotiation strategy, I think it's just to shut that down. By saying it, in some ways, you then put it back on the table. I don't think that was the intention. I think that was the unintended effect. Yeah, I mean, certainly if you say it in those words, read my lips, you absolutely put it back on the table. Yeah, but I wouldn't read too much into that. You wouldn't read it? No, no, I think, I mean, you're right, Chris, that there was this problem about the finance minister who's a Eurosceptic. And he's in government, actually, not as a finance minister, but as a minister of European affairs. But again, his plan is not necessarily to leave the Eurozone, but it's just to, as Helen said, play the card of Italy being too big to be pushed out to try to reform the European Union. And on that, I should say that another very important element in this negotiation is the European elections in May. That's what they are aiming for. And that's so striking, and it comes up a lot, that we hear in the wider context of European politics that people are are doing things and waiting for the results of the European elections in May. And from a British perspective, there's always been this feeling that those elections to the European Parliament, because it's not a real parliament, are kind of for show, they're they're where you signal in politics, but nothing really substantive hangs on them. And yet so much at the moment, I mean, these are huge questions for European politics. Why would they wait on the results of an election to a parliament, which is not itself going to decide anything, because these decisions are going to be taken in other places by other people? I think there are two reasons. I think one is that they do say a lot about national politics. So if there was a big movement to the quote-unquote populist right, that would really matter here. Which would then translate into MEPs and would influence very much the kind of the balance of power within the European Parliament. It's a kind of a proof or a kind of stamp of success or failure. So people like Macron are equally thinking very seriously about what this can you know, say about their electoral fortune. So it's, there's a kind of sense in which it indirectly measures the state of things at the national level. But it's also the case that if you can capture certain committees in the parliament, the parliament is a veto player within yeah. the European and, Union. And when they say it's not a real parliament, obviously it has enormous potential influence. It's just not actually the decisive actor. I mean, it's not a traditional sort of parliament in the sense that we think of the legislature and the kind of debates that take place in the legislature. That's not how it works. But its committees are very influential in seeing through or stopping certain things that the EU wants to do. And you can capture those committees if you have a certain amount of MEPs, you then have rights to being rapid auteurs and committees and that's the sort of institutional game which I think all national parties know how to play and in that sense it's strikingly similar to the House of Representatives I think as well though if you go back just to say but we were talking about that with Trump right it's controlling the committees to control the information that in the current political climate can be the decisive. But I think what's really striking is is the influence it had last time over who was the head of the commission. That is why Juncker is the head of the commission, because he was the Spitzen candidate of the large, of the party that ended up being the largest party. And I think it's really ironic that you know the last European 
parliamentary elections in Britain, that issue just completely passed the entire campaign by. There was no discussion of it by either of the, the main parties here, indeed, for that matter, by the Liberal Democrats. And then when David Cameron found that really Juncker was going to be president of the commission, I think that in some sense wasn't quite the beginning of the end, because I think there were reasons why the beginning had already started, if you see what I mean. But it was an important part in the story, because that was the point when he learned that he didn't actually have the influence over Merkel that he thought, because he thought she was going to veto him, Juncker being him there, and, and she didn't. And that played a part in then the attitude that the Commission took in the last years of Britain's membership and the path to the referendum, the outcome of the renegotiation. So the last European parliamentary elections really mattered. There was that scene of Cameron on a sort of small lake in Sweden with the Swedish Prime Minister, Merkel, I think Rutte maybe, kind of Mark Rutte of the Netherlands and himself, trying to get them to accept that it shouldn't be Juncker but someone else and that the council should have the final say on the president of the European Commission. It was a complete failure on his part. It was far too late and totally ineffectual. That was a kind of a symbolic sort of moment. I think Helen's right. You mentioned that Macron is also waiting for these elections in part to signal where he is in his project. So just... We're going to do this briefly and we'll do this in much more detail in future. But he's had a rocky few months, I think it's fair to say. He took a bit of time off for exhaustion, which may or may not symbolise the state of his government. Where do you think we are in in Project Macron? Three days, I think he took off. Which four. Four, four was it? <laughs> and the press were there to cover his um, um, recovery, weren't they? <laughs> yeah, Macron... Um, for Macron, the European parliamentary elections next year were to be a kind of a crowning achievement of the arrival of En Marche as this kind of movement that could even be a stimulus for a pan-European movement. Now I think it's double-edged. Some people also think it might cement his inability to, to win votes. And, not- am I right that they are currently just polling behind whatever the National Front is now called? What is it now called? The National something? Oh, it's the Rassemblement National, possibly. Is that right? Anyway, whatever. Marine Le Pen's party. Macron is behind. Well, Macron himself is uh, polling very low. I mean, he's been polling sort of lower than his predecessor for some time. I think a number of things are going on. One is um, the golden sort of moment has passed. Some things that he sort of presented have come back to bite him slightly. This kind of sense of being omnipotent and all achieving means that everything ends with him. And if something fails, then it's his fault. So taking responsibility for everything has a downside. The other thing is I think he's kind of cutting a slightly more sort of solitary figure in political terms. I mean, I was struck by how long it took him to fill certain key cabinet positions because he's had resignations by people, important people that he sort of drew from civil society, particularly on the environment. His environmental sort of minister resigned and that was an important figure. And for the, um, the French Ministry of Interior, and it took him a couple of weeks to fill that position. He could have filled it straight away, but I think he didn't want to fill it with just a Macron crony because it was a demonstration of his ability to pull people from across the political spectrum to support his project. And he couldn't. He ended up filling it with an absolute Macron crony of the kind of highest kind. So I think that suggests that there's a certain sentiment that maybe the kind of political forces outside of En Marche, the more traditional ones, are beginning to think that there's a life beyond Emmanuel Macron. And they're sort of reluctant to side with him because they might think that they can get something themselves in the future without having to, to support En Marche. Is, is there any sign of a revival of the, the centre-left? Mélenchon is still pretty popular. The centre-right has always, in a sense, been the mainstream opposition to Macron. Are the, the socialists anywhere? No. OK. <laughs> um, at the moment, the big crisis in France is the diesel 
tax, right? And the French government that insisted that cars convert to diesel and is now making those drivers pay. And it's, as I understand it, it, for people in Britain, it has some echoes of the fuel tax revolt, but it's also highlighted this sort of urban-rural divide because people in Paris don't drive much. But if you depend on your car, this feels really punitive. It's a big issue, right? It's a big issue. I think it goes beyond the rural-urban divide because the last poll I saw, something like three-quarters of people were against it. I mean, this is a large majority that is opposed to the Macron about this because I think it's not just about that I think it's kind of galvanised a certain sort of sentiment and a certain sort of sense that he's sort of out of touch I think I mean he's just taking decisions and doesn't really connect with people I mean this is you know a big big deal I think I mean it may be that it's diffused in some way but then something else will come along you know Macron is Macron and he doesn't have this kind of reach out into the into French society that a political party would really provide him with something that can kind of insulate these things get the message across in a different way there isn't that sort of deep penetration of French society and so when something happens it goes straight to him and um, flares up very very quickly. I think the other difficulty though for Macron is is that he wanted to define his project at the European level. He wanted to say in some sense his election meant the return of Europe. I mean he was quite keen on, on that rhetoric as was his acolytes but first of all that was a fairly incoherent hope because it entirely depended on what Merkel was going to do and there was never any real evidence that Merkel was going to back him in a significant way about the ideas for the the euro that he had, or indeed the ideas for integration more generally. But also it kind of ignored the fact that the depth of the economic problems that the French economy has. In one sense, he's had bad luck because lots of economies this year have actually taken a significant downturn. Indeed, Germany's just turned in a negative quarter of growth. France has actually done better than Germany for this last quarter. But Macron has not been able, you're not passing a judgment in this, is, is, but he's, he's not been able to get the French economy going again in a significant way. I don't see how he could have done, actually, given the different structural forces that seem to be sort of pushing towards, if not recession, at least lower levels of growth at the moment. But the combination of having talked a language of Europe whilst not being able to achieve anything on the domestic economic front is a pretty lethal combination. I think Helen Dry, I think Macron, one of his phrases, which if you look at his... It wasn't really an autobiography or a memoir. It was a kind of, it was his book, Revolution. It was a kind of um, his project for government, I suppose, with slightly autobiographical elements. One of the phrases that really struck in my mind was empowering people who get things done. And he obviously meant himself partly, but he also (laughs) meant, you know, lots of other people. But the emphasis on getting stuff done was central to Macron's political offer. He would get things done that nobody else had been able to do because he was an outsider, because he was young, because he was, you know, ambitious, whatever, because he was himself. And what we found, I think, is that some of the reforms that he's introduced, getting them through was quite an achievement for him, but the effects are very unclear for the time being. And so there isn't the sense of actually getting things done. And at the European level, was that was the place where he could more tangibly get stuff done if he could get deals. But it was always dependent on others. And the fact that Merkel now is really at the sort of the end of her reign, whether that's good or bad for him, I think all that suggests is that nothing's really going to happen very much for the time being. And so on both fronts, he's not... If his main message was, I do stuff, then he's not really managed to deliver beyond the sort of legislative packages that have been flowing. It almost feels like in a week where, on the one hand, there's a sort of fuel tax revolt because of the maybe unforeseen effects of something that he did get done. Um, And on the other hand, he gave this well-received speech about the dangers of nationalism at a very, very general level, which has provoked a spat with Trump. And that that level of politics, which isn't about deal-making, it's about Trump and the kind of Twitter sphere. 
the bit in between is what's missing. It's almost that that level of sort of international politics where you do come up with tangible results because you've worked hard to produce some kind of deal that will stick. That's the bit that's missing. Micro stuff's happening. Super macro stuff is happening. Whatever the bit in between micro and super macro, that's where he's struggling. No, I entirely agree. I think what he's done is he's shifted from being I am the symbol of the future of Europe in the sense of I can get things done in Europe to I am the symbol of the future of Europe because I am going to confront the United States and and, and remind us of Trump. values rather than actual practical economic Absolute, outcomes. Yeah. And if I can say values that at least in Italy are perceived as being completely betrayed on a daily basis. Absolutely. I mean, this is where uh, we can talk Just say a bit more about that. Well, he's a, t- he's a total <laughs> hypocrite when so, it comes to migration. Yeah, exactly. So when it comes to... So when he got elected, there was also uh, the, the PD and centrist people in, in Italy, they, they were super excited. But then it turns out that the first things he did in Italy were to send back migrants on the border in a very violent way. So a few people died and they tried to hide what they did. And basically what they are doing, the, poli- the French police is doing, is stepping into the border without any permission from the Italian police. And this is seen as completely unacceptable and hypocrite. So while we've been talking, no one has resigned from the British cabinet. So we, we can't really discuss the so-called Brexit deal because we don't know what's in it, who will put up with it who will throw their toys out of the pram but I'm going to ask a last very general question which is what's so striking in all of this is everything is in flux in Europe we've touched on Merkel but German politics is up for grabs French politics is pretty volatile at the moment Italian politics is super volatile there's a lot of movement and yet there was absolute to this point solidity in the negotiation over Brexit And we've discussed this a bit before, but there's a deal and the question now is, can the British government hold? But I still feel at some point what's moving in European politics has got to fray the European approach to Brexit, doesn't it? Or are we at that point where these things are entirely separate? So in the minds of European politicians, they've got their own battles to fight, but the Brexit issue is one where they they can hold together while we fall apart. I think it's the latter. I think that's just less of an issue. As we've said before on this podcast, I think in a number of national capitals, they're not really talking about Brexit, certainly not in Berlin. People are negotiating it. There's a sort of a set of... They're uh, happy to leave it to the negotiators, the functionaries, essentially. On the the terms that have been set, which so far, given the sort of positions of the UK government, haven't infringed the kind of the basic terms that the EU has set. You know, this kind of come close a little bit. There's been maybe small compromises on the EU side, but not anything to really shake up the guidelines. So, so there genuinely guidelines. is a, a gap between flux and possibly even chaos in some aspects of European politics and a negotiation over Britain's exit. Well, I think it's, that's because the difficult questions for the future are not being talked about. They're not being negotiated at the moment. They're all being pushed into the future relationship. And as soon as that set of negotiations begins. So assuming that we get past the withdrawal agreement, I mean by that that it's ratified by Parliament, which is obviously, of course, a big 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 if. if. But let's say that that is what happens, then a whole set of negotiations have got to begin again about what the future economic relationship is between Britain and the European Union. And at that point, I think we might expect to see some of the differences of interests between the European Union states coming to the fore. Because in that sense, the question of like, maintaining the authority of the European Union in relation to a member state exiting, that will have been achieved by the way in which the negotiations leading up to withdrawal will have been realised. But the question about the future is a whole other proposition and clearly there are a number of different possibilities at stake and different European Union states have got different interests and 
in relation to it and different judgments about what kind of relationship Britain should have with the European Union. When we have a clearer idea of what is actually going to happen in British politics in relation to this deal, we are going to talk about it on this podcast. We also have coming up a really interesting interview with Martha Nussbaum, one of the world's leading philosophers, talking about fear and anxiety and disgust in politics. As always, links to some of the things that we've been talking about and further reading is on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. So please follow us there and do please join us again next week. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. I'm, gonna say, I'm just going to say one thing because Catherine's looking at me because it's says, well, the rustliness you're right, you're, you're the rustliness is right that's fine take a swig and then sit on them okay I'm just, well, you, you come in <laughs> you, you come in and then I'll ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend This is Roundabout Season 2, and we're back to share more stories from the road and the memories made along the way. We're talking rest stops. If we're stopping to get gas, you will be timed. (laughs) (laughs) You will be right. Misguided plans. I grew up in the city, so I have, like, you know, a healthy fear of real extreme darkness. (laughs) This was, like, wilderness. A lot of laughs. Y'all weird, but you, yeah, you, you were different. Like you were real different. Bro. I can't really put my finger on it. And so much more. Just goes to show that unexpected yeah. things sometimes are the best when it comes to a road trip. Roundabout season two, presented by Nissan, is live now with new episodes rolling out every Thursday. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.